My first year on the PGA Tour, like most rookies, you feel really uncomfortable. I got there and I went, oh my God, I got my PGA Tour card. But now what am I going to do? Right. Amongst Jack Nicholas and Fred Couples, Arnold Palmer, and there's Lee Trevino. For six months, I can't make a cut and I'm getting all wound up. I knew I was playing well, but my hyperactive mind, it was causing so much anxiety. So I said, well, I listened to music to calm down with this Sony Walkman. Why don't you listen to music on the golf course? And I went, oh, wow, well, that's a pretty dangerous proposition. The next week was Milwaukee. So I stuffed the Sony Walkman in my bag, went playing with Larry Mize, 100 yards away from the clubhouse, and I slapped this headphone on. And Larry goes, look at Disco Dick. And I've got the rock and roll going, and I'm coming down the 18th hole, and I'm seven under par, and I'm so comfortable. I'm in my own little world. I've listened to music, and it's effortless. I led the tournament after the first round, all the way up to the fourth to the last hole on Sunday. So this was a monumental discovery, what music did to me. And at that moment, I went, wow, this game is psychological because the only thing here has changed is how I thought. I can't physically compete with Fred Couples, but from a mental perspective, I can compete with them if I perform mentally. Now I look back on it, and these were the seeds, what are Mind Track Golf? Welcome to the Wad Golf Podcast, where we speak with the influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're new to the Wad Golf Podcast, thanks so much for joining us, and please subscribe to the show so you hear about all the upcoming episodes and you can enter our latest golf product giveaway. Before we get started here, I want to thank one of our sponsor partners, Golf Genius Software, for helping bring you this episode. Golf Genius Software powers tournament management of thousands of private clubs, public courses, resorts, and golf associations all over the world. So if you're a golf course operator who wants to do less work, have more fun, and generate more revenue, check them out online at golfgenius.com. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today my guest is Dick Sokol, two-time PGA Tour winner and the CEO and founder of MindTrack Golf. MindTrack Golf is a mental fitness platform and mobile app developed and tested in competition on the PGA Tour by Richard himself that helps golfers of all levels improve performance by training the user to remain in this present moment over every golf shot. And Dick, believe me, this is something I needed yesterday on the back nine, playing at Fraserview here in Vancouver, because I... I wasn't staying in that present moment. I was getting a little heated. So perhaps you can give you a little golf therapy as we go. But hey, with that introduction, Dick, thanks so much for joining us today and welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Colin. I've been watching your program for a while now and great to be on it and happy to talk about golf and particularly how the mind works as it relates to playing performance on the golf course. And what you're talking about, what happened to you yesterday, happens to every single golfer. It does not matter if you're a PGA Tour pro or a beginner. That mental aspect is very important. Yeah. And for me, and we'll <clears> dig into this and perhaps how, uh, how I could have used MindTrack Golf yesterday. I'm a 15 handicap, getting better because I played more last year during COVID than I ever have. So, yeah, played pretty well in the front nine there and then had a couple of bad swings and especially my short game. I, that's where I know strokes lost, strokes gained. That's where I need to work. And I hit a couple of classic, a chunk, and then I sculled over the green and then my mind was just like, ugh. So, so you had, let me jump in right there because I'm seeing some flags right there. So you had a good front nine. Did you project to what you might do if you continued your good play on the back nine to what that might mean to you? might mean that I enjoyed the beer we had afterwards that I had to pay for because I lost the the guy I was playing with a little bit better. But but ultimately, it's, yeah, just looking at it as lost opportunities or, or strokes thrown away, and it's just kind of infuriating. 
Those ones there that just slip away that separate me right now from, let's say, someone that's a seven or eight handicap of me as a 15 and knowing where that is. And once again, in my head, then, then when I'm pitching, chipping the ball around the green, those 30 yard shots that I need to put more work in, but I know full well it's mental more than technical on my end now so so with exactly. that we'll dig into my own psychosis and my problems on the golf course and a little you use me as you as your guinea pig here dick but let's let's rewind the tape here and talk about your introduction to golf way back when did you start playing at what age and how did you get into the game first of all well i started caddying i, I grew up in vancouver lived across the street from the marine drive golf club became a junior member when i was 12 years old at marine drive in 1970 And prior to that, I would go out and caddy for my father. Being that we lived right across the street meant it was easy access. And so when I became a junior golfer, I played lots of other sports. I played, I was a pitcher in Caresdale Little League. I played soccer. Wasn't a hockey player, but golf really resonated with me. And when I got to about that 14, 15-year-old stage, while I was getting into a little bit of trouble, you might say, as a youth, And my father came down pretty hard on me. And he said, look, this group that you're running around with, you're getting into a little too much trouble, like getting close to legal trouble. He said, the only place you can go to is across the street to that golf course. I listened to him and started to get some new close friends. My closest friend growing up was a fellow by the name of Russ Jordan. We would compete in practice all day long. So I started to get into a little bit of competition, doing some inter-club competition, Marine Drive versus the other golf courses in the junior level. And it really appealed to me, the competition of it. I love the aspect of this is your responsibility and only you. You didn't have a team to rely on or make excuses for as well. And uh, it was something that was very appealing. Nice, nice. So. Let's move forward then. As far as college golf, you played at BYU, I understand. You had a very successful uh, college career there. So then move us through your golf funnel then of you then getting to the ranks of, of professional golf. Well, I wanted to go the NCAA route, and there was a guy in Vancouver that I looked up to who I didn't know that was having a lot of success down in the collegiate level, and his name was Jim Nelford. Jim became one of my closest friends. When he was finished his fourth year at Brigham Young University, he was a first-team All-American, won the Western Amateur, won the Canadian Amateur two times. He was the best player in Canada, and I wanted to follow in his footsteps. So I wrote the coach at Brigham Young University, and he said to me, thanks, but no thanks, you're not good enough. I didn't know what a Mormon was, but I wanted to go to Brigham Young University just simply because Nelford had so much success there. So as it turned out, after I graduated high school, I got paired with Nelford in the BC Amateur in Kamloops, and I played really well. Won the Vancouver City Amateur in that same year and was leading the BC Amateur. And Jim extended himself to the coach, Coach Carl Tucker. And he said, you know what, this Zocal kid's got some moxie. He may not be the best player, but he's tenacious. So I drove down and met the coach, and he says, look, I don't have any grant and aid. But I'll put you in the dorm room with this kid we got coming in named Bobby Clampett. And I said, man, you can put me in with Jethro or Ellie Mae. I don't care who it is. Give me a chance to make the team. Right. So he did. And then I realized who Bobby Clampett was. This guy was Tiger Woods before there ever was a Tiger Woods. It turned from a Cinderella story. Bobby turned pro our senior year and, and became a phenom in his rookie year on the PGA Tour. I was the captain of the team. We were the number one ranked team in the NCAA, and we went into the championship at Stanford. We won the NCAA championship. I was the captain of the team. I walked on the team and came out the captain when we won the NCAA championship four years later. And then that fall, I won the Canadian Amateur and then qualified for the PGA Tour in Q School in the fall of 1980. And my first year was 1982 on the PGA Tour. 
Got it. Got it. Of course, they don't have Q school anymore, especially for our younger listeners here. Can you walk us through the, from what I understand, it's the absolute crucible. The, the, the Q school is crazy. Can you, you tell us about what that experience was like? Well, I've had a few of them. It is literally the walking the gauntlet in the most pressure situation because your livelihood depends on whether you perform on the golf course or not. In my rookie year, my first year at the qualifying school, I went down to a couple of stages, went down, a, I think it was in Dallas on the sectional stage. And then the finals were four rounds. A year later, it became six rounds and you're playing for so many spots. And in 1981, I came out of that qualifying school with, and it's just tremendous pressure. You're trying to make a par to keep a job or make a job or, or whatever it is. There's young kids, there's old people, veteran players that are trying to get their job back. It's just a brutal pressure situation, but it's the gauntlet and the walk you have to make that teaches you if you're not ready mentally or if you have a weakness in your game that it best prepare you for a livelihood in, in professional golf and the PGA Tour. So uh, it defines players. It starts, initiates them, and it also ends them at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm sure you've experienced and were around some incredibly heartbreaking moments there. I, I'm sure it's coming down to like the, mm-hmm. like one putt between <clears throat> at that time, of course, there was no Corn Ferry Tour. Of course, before that, it was web.com. There was no Champions Tour at that time. So if, if, if you didn't perform, but you lost by, you missed it by one stroke, you're done. You're not playing professional golf, basically. You're, you're back working at a club somewhere, essentially. That's right. I, yeah. That's exactly right. So I, I remember the the first year, I made it right on the number. Wow. And then went through my rookie year, and that was an interesting situation where the name Disco Dick came about. I don't yeah. know if you know or old enough to oh, remember. I that. do. I was waiting to ask you about that. Okay. Talk about that. Yeah. And then, so I lost my card. I didn't make enough money in my first year, which was the first year of the All Exempt Tour, where you had to make the top 125. I finished about 151. Then went back to the qualifying school. Was at TPC Sawgrass, six rounds, grueling rounds at TPC Sawgrass, and finished fourth. So I was exempt really basically my second year out there and got my momentum going, got stabilized and then became an exempt player after my my second year on the PGA Tour. After learning about dealing with pressures on the PGA Tour, it was quite an experience and and there was no, you're right, there was no corn ferry to hone your game on before you got there and you either learned how to swim real fast or you sank real fast. Whoa, talk about Darwinian selection at at its hardest. (laughs) Wow, unbelievable. So let's talk about Disco Dick. We say we can't choose your nicknames. They're kind of given to you and some we love and some we don't. I don't know if you like that one or not. I I remember you as a a kid with that. So I'm assuming with technology, that was a Sony Walkman that you had on before. Some of our listeners may not even know what that is. They'll have to Google that one. So talk about this as far as the mindfulness. We had Andy Walker on the show a couple of weeks ago. And he joked, but not joked. He said, golf is 95% mental and 5% mental. So with that, I'm sure you embrace that too, Dick, also. So before we get into what led to the creation and the aha moment and the pain points to see you create mind track golf and the entrepreneurial endeavor you're doing now, let's talk about that mindfulness piece and why you decided to listen to music when no one else is really doing that, which is commonplace now. So talk us through that. Well, my first year on the PGA Tour, like most rookies on the PGA Tour, you feel really uncomfortable. I got there and went, oh my God, I got my PGA Tour card. <laughs> now what am I going to do? Right. And I'd get out there and I, I, you know, I'm amongst Jack Nicholas and, and Fred Couples is his rookie the year before and he's succeeding and there's Arnold Palmer and there's Lee Trevino and I don't exactly feel comfortable out there. And so I'm getting in a few of these tournaments and I'm not making a cut, Colin. For six months, I can't make a cut and I'm getting all wound up. My excitement level, I knew I was playing well, but my hyperactive mind 
It was causing so much anxiety because I was future projecting. And now I look back on it, and these were the seeds what are Mind Track Golf now. So I decided to think, what, am, what am I going to do? I'm six months into the tour and I haven't made a cut yet. So I said, well, I listen to music to calm down in the evening with this Sony Walkman. Why don't you listen to music on the golf course? And I went, oh, wow, well, that's a pretty dangerous proposition. So I go to the Western Open and it's the night before and I got this Sony Walkman and I absolutely chicken out. I just chicken right out of this. I can't do this. What are they going to think? It's like going out there with purple hair at the time. Right, right. And I miss the cut and I'm furious with myself. In my history, I have no problem failing because I can learn from failing, but I have a real problem being a chicken. My parents taught me stand up and fight for whatever it is. And I, I didn't like that. So the next week was Milwaukee. So the following Wednesday night before the first round, I'm still having these thought trepidations. Oh, what if I shoot 79 doing it? All these projecting thoughts that are right. very unhealthy as I come to learn. So I stuffed the Sony Walkman in my bag and I teed off on the 10th tee at Tuckaway Country Club. I'm playing with Ronnie Black and Larry Mize. And I walked down 100 yards away from the clubhouse and I slapped this headphone on. And Larry goes, look at Disco Dick. And I've got the rock and roll going. I'm listening to the Eagles. And Colin, I'm one under par, two under par, three under par, four under par, five under par, six under par. I'm coming down the 18th hole and I'm seven under par. And I'm so comfortable. I'm in my own little world. I've listened to music and it's effortless. I'm noticing all these cameras. These people are taking pictures of me. And I finished the round and the PGA Tour officials are going, what are in the world are you doing? What are you listening to? I said, listen to music. And he said, well, if you're listening to any golf lessons or instructions, you're disqualified. They had to call the USGA to find out if this was legal. I'm going, oh, no, it's all they need. So they say, no, you can do this. You can listen to music. I led the tournament after the first round. Yeah. I led the tournament after the second round, after the third round, and all the way up to the fourth to the last hole on Sunday. So this was a monumental discovery, what music did to me. And at that moment, I went, wow, this game is psychological because the only thing here has changed is how I thought. So I did it for a year. I learned from this music to calm down, calm my hyperactive mind. And then Jim Nelford and I, you know, who was my best friend out there, we started traveling with sports psychologists. We started doing biofeedback with Dr. Richard Lanetto from the University of Guelph. Because at that point, I said, wow, I can't physically compete with Fred Couples, but I think from a mental perspective, I can compete with them if I perform mentally. Right. Wow. So there's the aha moment. So as an entrepreneur, and you know, Dick, that I spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs, not just in the golf yes. space, but across sport and other industries, other sectors also. And I always see these recurring themes of what makes successful entrepreneurs or even a mm -hmm. successful business idea rather than just something that's cool. So mm -hmm. I know from the conversation we had previously, you've seen <clears throat> the pain points and you've come up with a solution now that obviously you've been working on for decades now to get it to this point. The technology has finally converged to allow you to do this so you can scale it up. So with that, why don't we fast forward and tell us what MindTrack Golf is and why you created it. Well, let me just jump back to where the real aha moment happened when I created this method. You know, after I won a couple times in the early 90s, 10 years after my rookie year, I fell into that rabbit hole of my ego was trying to protect myself as a PGA Tour champion. I didn't realize that I started to slide. And then as I started to kind of rebound back up, I was, had worked so much with a lot of sports psychologists. I knew that when Bob Rotella came out with this past, present, and future understanding of our mindset, that was a problem that I was doing. I was getting ahead of myself. Every time I got into contention, I would always default to that future projection. 
got to make this shot before I hit it. And so in 1999, I was coming back to the PGA Tour and I created this new method, what is now productized in MindTrack Golf. And I realized that in order for me to play my best, I had to access this present moment with every shot. When you're consumed with the result, you're projecting forward. And I recognized I was falling into that, what we call golf insanity state, doing that thing over and over again and expecting a different result. It just never happens. So in order to do it, I had to create a new measurement. We've rendered it down to two key performance markers or KPIs in the business industry. And as it relates to golf, you are and I am and Tiger Woods are only as good as your ability to assess that shot and then to execute that shot in any given moment. So assessing that shot is picking the golf club, which you're going to use, which means you might have a yardage. You got to look at the lie. You got to look at the wind. You got to look at how you're feeling. And then before you make a decision and then executing that shot, not golf swing, but execution. So there's a differentiating performance when you're in the moment of competition, which is the same thing in hockey or basketball or football or whatever sport, which is very different than on the driving range. So in this moment, when I started working with this, I started to recondition my thought process into all my key performance markers in the tournaments, Colin, and I'd go back and record them. I started to get really good at this. So at the US Open at 2000 at Pebble Beach, this is where the real aha moment happened because I was practicing this thought protocol in competition for about five months up until this point, And I was starting to get really good at it. And it literally caused me to detach emotionally from the result. So on the Sunday of the US Open, that's the famous Sunday of the Tiger, one by 15. I go out there, I had this freedom. I wasn't in contention. I had a poor round on Saturday. And it's Pebble Beach. It's gorgeous. I felt freedom because I've unlocked this feeling of my mind emotionally. And I go out there and I shoot 30 on the front nine. Wow. And it's a US Open record for nine holes at Pebble Beach. And my caddy says to me going down the 10th hole, he says, do you know what you shot? And I said, no, I don't. And I don't care, which was proof to me that I had actually detached from the results. Right. Because I didn't know where I was. And then he said, you shot 30. And the aha moment happened at that moment when I still didn't care. And that was the real light bulb that went on. Because typically when someone says to you, hey, Colin, you know, you're three under par after nine holes and you aren't aware of it. You wake up and that awareness causes you to what I call thought shear. It changes your thoughts and then you have a horrible back nine and get back to your comfort zone. So that was the aha moment that triggered what led to what is now my track golf. I see. Love it. Love it. So that was 2000. And here we are, fast forward two decades later. So was it one of these situations with this in your life and where you were professionally or even where the technology hadn't quite come together yet to right. allow you to do what you're doing now? So that it sounds like there were many other factors for the planets to align. And as we talk about in entrepreneurship, one of the key ingredients to success, and sometimes it's luck and sometimes you actually mm-hmm. have the vision, is timing. So it seems to timing me what you're, put, you're putting together here with Mindtrack Golf, the timing seems very, very good for what you're doing. So expand then on the why. and yeah, Tell us a little more about MindTrack Golf then, if you would. Yeah. So at that time, I was an old guy on the PGA Tour during that time. So I retired from golf in 2003. They didn't have smartphones, apps, or anything. I figured that MindTrack or what is now MindTrack was going to be a book. And then I got involved with golf course development and golf course design and construction and put this on the side. And then it wasn't until the past five years when I went, wow, this is a perfect opportunity for it to be an app. So what I did at that point I'm attracted to ambitious projects like getting onto the PGA Tour or building this golf course called Sagebrush that I built. If it's not ambitious, I'm not doing it. So I went, 
wow, this is an opportunity to create this app because now I started to understand what we were doing. So I've got a lovely network. And, and if it wasn't for having been a part of a startup team in, in Eagle Quest Golf Centers, I don't think I'd have the knowledge or experience or timing to get it. So everything came together around 2016, 17. We started the company. I reached out to some key people in the industry from the corporate finance side and mergers and acquisitions and got some people to help me with co-founding it. David Rafa, who is that person I just spoke about, Dave Coombs and Ken Fisher, who put some money up. So then I reached out to a good friend of mine who is the COO of Blast Radius in Vancouver, and they introduced me to their digital marketing people, and they introduced me to some people that could build a prototype. So I started to piece some dollars together. The first $35,000, we built a prototype. It led to expanding the company and structuring the company. It's just a lovely story of people who we connected with and where we are today. We built a couple of prototypes. We took a prototype in 2019 to uh, the Canadian Open, and I introduced it to Golf Canada's Young Pro Squad and talked to the CEO of Golf Canada, Lawrence Applebaum, and beta tested it with them, and it had some remarkable influences, particularly with Taylor Pendrith. We introduced this method to him, and it just turned his world around, and he finished second on the Corn Ferry Tour last year, and it turned his game around, and we're very excited to have that success. Love it. Love it. And you just mentioned a couple of key things there for entrepreneurs at an early stage. Rather than create this product, this thing that you fall in love with and not share it with anybody, you want to make it perfect. And Dick, as we know, there is no perfect on the golf course and in entrepreneurship. You put it out there, ask for feedback, test it, and find out what works and what doesn't work. So you're not spending all this time, energy, and money. And unfortunately, the reason that eight or nine out of 10 startups fail is they don't do that quick enough. And in fact, you've got your prototype built, you've got it out there, you've got your minimum viable product, as we call it in the lean startup world, as you know, and then you got it tested and you listen and then you rework that. So you got that feedback loop there of build, measure, test, learn, and then build some more. So many entrepreneurs, unfortunately, don't do that because either they're scared to, uh, I always use the analogy is like, you don't want someone to tell you your baby's ugly. So a lot of people won't even show people their baby when they're in entrepreneurship, their product or their service or whatever they're creating there. But the fact you did, and that takes courage, you just got to put it out there. And that allows you to move forward before you put it out there. The, the, the last thing you want is to create something that's on time, on budget that nobody wants, that no one's going right. to pay for, right? So Exactly. You want to make sure the product market fits. <laughs> Absolutely. So tell us where you are now. What stage are you at with MindTrack Golf? When we launched and we structured the company for private investment, we raised about, and, and this is one of the key factors that how we're growing organically. So we're a few years into this and we've raised about 380000 I'm very proud to say that all the money that we've raised from investment capital has gone into the development. No one has gotten salaries. The executive team that I've put together, which is quite remarkable, is going to benefit if the company's successful of stock options in the company and they believe in it. At every aspect that we've gone on to in creating a, a prototype and beta testing, we've passed every measure. One thing I was hoping to be able to do today on this podcast is make this announcement, but unfortunately, we're not going to. We're going to be bringing on a partner, hopefully by the end of this week, that's going to be quite significant. And it's another milestone of how in the market we've been accepted. So we've gotten some remarkable play by golfers like Taylor Pendrith that turned his world around just by introducing this methodology. 
when we come out next week with this announcement, we're going to have a significant market influencer that's going to be a part of our company. And it's going to be a great story. As we launch, we're dealing with the PG of America, the PG of Canada. And uh, we want to make sure that Golf Canada is involved in it because it's going to be that next step to break down that psychological barrier in performance. So we're very excited about our next steps and where we've come from and where we're going to. Love it. Love it. And you touched on another key ingredient to a successful startup and an endeavor, and that is partnerships and ones that complement what you're doing because you can't do it all. And right. uh, you only go so fast yourself there. So you're doing the right thing there. So I wanted to ask you this also as an entrepreneur, it sounds like working with Eagle Quest, you've got a lot of insights there as far as entrepreneurship and, and creating something and building something up there and being able to scale it, how that all works. So let's talk about the business side. And so many people don't focus mm-hmm. on this. They think they got this really cool thing. And I'll be honest, eight years ago when we first got into the golf space, we didn't know the pricing strategy. We didn't know what our sure. break-even point was. We didn't even know what the market op- who really our customer was. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. talk about the market opportunity if, if people don't understand what this is. Talk about as far as what you see the market from the top down and then maybe from the bottom up also where you see the opportunity for you to scale this and the number of potential users that you have for my company. Sure. Well, the total addressable market is huge and, and it was large before COVID. As you know, it's exponentially grown in the past year oh, yeah. since COVID. But our service addressable market is initially going to be is North America and it's significantly increased. Prior to COVID, there were about 24 million golfers in the United States, and you can throw in about 6 million in Canada. But that number has jumped up to about 36 million, I believe, after COVID. So what we're looking to do is that golf consumer spends a lot of money in memberships and travel and golf clubs and golf balls and tee times and psychologists. So our product is going to be a, a monthly reoccurring revenue model at $5.99 we're trying to capture a modest 1.25% of the Avid Core group, which is, oh gosh, that's going to be about 18 million golfers. Mm -hmm. And we think if you're a golf enthusiast, and if you want to improve your game, every golfer, and it doesn't matter, like if you looked at Xander Shoffley at Augusta on the 16th hole of a huge moment, he made an excellent execution with that eight iron, but his assessment was wrong, and it cost him millions of dollars. So it doesn't matter if you're a golf pro, Colin, or a weekend hacker, everyone knows that they can improve their game mentally. There hasn't been a product like this in the market that deals with pulling you into the present moment or being a coaching tool that shows you where your performance measurements are on the golf course, where your shot lost events are, and where your shot gained events are. And another thing we do in our data and our reports is we create your own baseline standard. You, Colin, should be compare yourself to the baseline standard of a PGA Tour pro in your ability. You need to set your own baseline standard and then each round compare your key performance markers against your positive up or down of your own baseline standard. So it reconditions your thoughts and it pulls you into the present moment. And it's that wonderful and unique coaching tool that's going to give all coaches a better way to analyze their client's performance on the golf course. So then they can custom fit what they need to teach them on the practice tee. So as an example, like the buzzword today is getting more club head speed. Well, if Colin, if your ability to not assess around the green, to read greens or read how, how firm they are, and that's where the data is showing where you're hemorrhaging shots away, 
like on the back nine, then I think we need to readjust whether you're going to have that lesson with club head speed or not. And you'd be better suited to something that improves your weakest key performance markers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. After uh, what happened yesterday, that, that's uh, 100% true, Dick. Uh, absolutely. So one of the things with creating a product, it's not necessarily the features, but it's the benefits. And also the other key piece is how do you convert people from being non-users to users, that adoption? Because with a lot of things, whatever it is, whatever product or service is in life, as humans, we usually gravitate towards the the comfort of what we know, even though if that's a bad thing, because we kind of Mm -hmm. were familiar with that. So how do you look with your marketing strategy and also with the benefits that you provide with MindTrack Golf, how do you look to onboard, let's say someone like me, it seems like I am right in your wheelhouse as, as a potential user. So how would you go about projecting or, or articulating the key benefits of MindTrack Golf very simply for, for someone like me that will then make me lean in and go, absolutely, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this a shot. So there's two aspects on that. The individual person can go to the app store, download it, and use it themselves and figure it out themselves. But our greatest soldiers are going to be PGA of America, PGA of Canada, or PGA of whatever country as soldiers, because we're going to give them this tool, and we're going to allow them to make more money. And first of all, they're going to be able to continue their current conventional way to instruct, which may be the Hank Haney way or the David Ledbetter way or whatever way they teach their golf swing, but also they can now amend a psychological component to their student using MindTrack. And so what happens is when the user subscribes to it, pays the $5.99, and if you use the coaching plus aspect, so it'll jump to $9.99 that the user will pay, well, we're going to give that money to that coach. And that coach is going to not only be able to make 25% of the people he brings into using the MindTrack app, but they're also going to be able to expand their psychological component in the performance. And they're going to get every single report after every round their user uses. There's going to be three reports that are going to be sent to the user and to the user's coach. And they are the scorecard report, which measures all the shot lost events and shot gained events. Then the second report is the KPM trend graph. And this is the graph that determines how well your round performance is against your baseline standard. And then there's a round summary report that your coach can look at. It categorizes your key performance markers in each category of shot. Like full shot, there's a bunch of subcategories, driver, three wood, short iron, long iron, wedges that are full swing. Short irons are the chip, pitch, bunker shots, and putts in the category of first putt and second putt. And keep in mind, those two categories of putts are very different when you dive into the mind track perspective. And also too, one of the wonderful things about this app, before each round, you have to distinguish whether it's a casual round, a serious round, or a competition round. Because these three different types of rounds really mess with the golfer's mind. So if you're a casual round playing nine holes after dinner, I mean, golf doesn't get any more easier than that. But if you're playing a serious round, say a $100 NASA, that's a different story. And if you play in a club championship, and then everything comes unglued for most golfers. So <laughs> collecting their performance data in each of these different aspects of performance are very important. And this is relative to every golfer. So it's whether you're trying to get on into professional golf at the McKenzie Tour level, Corn Ferry Tour level, PGA Tour level, or even for Xander Shoffley trying to win his first major, or Hideki Matsuyama trying to win his first major as he was able to jump up to that step. And that was a, just a, such a wonderful performance on Hideki's part. And where he won it, it was his mind on Sunday mm-hmm. at Augusta. Wow. Yep, I agree with that. 
So hey, I can keep going here, but we do want to jump over to our video interview for our YouTube channel, our Mod Golf YouTube channel. Of course, we want to encourage our listeners here to become viewers because you and I are going to have a slightly different conversation there based on your experience and Mind Track Golf. Why don't we save the conversation for applying my round yesterday and what went right and what went wrong. So if you listeners want to uh, learn more about my mediocre golf game as a 15 handicap and what went wrong yesterday, because it's safe to say on the back nine especially, I did not cover my handicap at all. So yeah, I'd love to learn more about the user experience journey, dig more into that, and also how it could apply to me. So why don't we save that for there? So hey, while we wrap up here, Dick, why don't you let our listeners know where they can download the app and where they can learn more about MindTrack golf sure absolutely mind track golf app is only available in an ios product so you can go to the app store and it's free right now until we commercially launch so you can go there download it we don't have it in an android product yet but the app store at mind track golf and go to our website mind track golf and that's m-i-n-d-t-r-a-k-g-o-l-f there's no c in mind track mindtrackgolf.com there's videos there's explanations and there you can get very familiarized with our product Love it. Love it. And as I always do, I will include all of those things that Dick just mentioned in the show notes for this episode, also on his bio page on the Mod Golf Podcast website. So we'll make it nice and easy for you all so you don't have to be madly scribbling all this down here that you'll be able to click on the links. We'll make it nice and easy, just like MindTrack Golf is doing, trying to make things easier, not more difficult for you and to clear your mind. So that's what we like to do here at the Mod Golf Podcast. There, I try to get a little zenny there with my voice here just to kind of align my chakras. And maybe that's what I should have done on the 15th hole when it was all going sideways. A little more chakra alignment is what I need there, Dick. So Dick Zokel, former PGA Tour player, two-time winner, and the founder and CEO of MindTrack Golf. Dick, I'm so glad you reached out to me and connected and we made this happen. It's been a pleasure to get to know you. Hopefully in a couple of weeks, I'll be able to be up in your area in beautiful Vernon, British Columbia at Predator Ridge. And who knows, if you're there, maybe we can socially distance, play a hole or two, or you can uh, help me work on my mediocre short game that's making my life miserable right now. So Dick, hey, again, thanks so much. It's great to meet you, speak to you today, and thanks for being on the Mod Golf Podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Colin. Appreciate it. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my engaging conversation with two-time PGA Tour winner, Dick Sokol, who is the CEO and founder of MindTrack Golf. If you'd like to learn more about Dick, visit our episode show page where we've included website links and contact information. The video link for my extended conversation with Dick is also on the episode show page. And please subscribe to our Mod Golf YouTube channel while you're there. If you leave a comment, I promise to respond. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor partners, Golf Genius Software and British Columbia Golf, for help making the Mod Golf podcast happen. Without their support, I wouldn't be able to bring you these engaging stories from golf's brightest innovators and influencers. If you enjoyed this conversation about entrepreneurship and community building in the golf industry, you can find more compelling episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen in. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks so much for joining me. Bye for now.